Good morning. Morning. Um, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Caitlin. Um, I'm part of the Kingdom Vineyard staff team, and one of my many jobs is being part of the preaching team. Um, we've been having a little break from the series and look that we've been uh, working through for quite a while now. Um, we had Tim come and speak from Chester um, on Psalm 4, and we had Toby giving us a big overview of prayer. And then as is tradition, last week on Kingdom Vineyard's birthday, we had a Thanksgiving service, which was just so encouraging. But prior to all of that, we've been walking through Luke chapter 9, um, and I think it's worth just casting our minds back to where we've been before we read the next and final section in this chapter of Luke. A whole lot happens in chapter 9. There are some really big moments, like Jesus sending out his disciples, giving them power and authority to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. There's the feeding of the 5,000, there's the transfiguration, and there's healings and deliverances. And between all these big moments, there's small but no less important conversations and teachings. The big question of who is Jesus is raised several times, and there's challenging teaching from Jesus about what it means to be a disciple. A lot happens, but what is the point? What have been our takeaways? We've been asking this question, who is Jesus? And in this chapter, we learn about Jesus's power and authority, that he has authority over demons and disease. We learn about his glory as God the Son, the Messiah. And we're simultaneously hearing again and again in his teaching that we're going to experience salvation through Jesus's suffering and death, not through a triumphant military takeover. He is taking the road of the suffering servant, a lowly position, and all of this is building up a picture for us of who Jesus is. So with all that in mind, we're going to read together Luke chapter 9, 46 to 62, which is the final section of this chapter, and Sam, who I can't see, there we go, is going to read, read it for me. argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is the least among you who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and the disciples went to another village. 
As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever I go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Thanks, Sam. So today we're moving away from who is Jesus and turning to the question that follows, who am I to be in light of who Jesus is and what does that look like? I see this passage in kind of two parts, each with three kind of little stories. The first half, we have the disciples failing to understand all the teaching and demonstration that has come before a disciple classic. And the second half, we see three people who want to or are being asked to follow Jesus, and Jesus has some challenging responses. But both sections have a lot to teach us about following Jesus and being his disciple, so that's what we're going to focus on throughout. So part one, the disciples. I find this whole section rather comical especially given Jesus has just spoken about how he is going to suffer and die. Here we have the disciples in an argument about who is going to be the greatest, followed by them trying to stop someone who isn't one of them from carrying out the ministry of Jesus, followed by them offering to call fire down from heaven and destroy an entire village. It's face palm worthy stuff. They just haven't got it. They haven't got the heart of Jesus and the way of the kingdom. So the argument then, can we get this up on the screen? Great. Which one of us is going to be the greatest? Whose crown is going to be the biggest and shiniest? And this isn't even the last time we're going to hear this argument. It happens again towards the end of the gospel at the Last Supper of all places. What I think might be going on here is this. I think the disciples are getting a bit caught up in the glory stories. And they are glorious, the healings and deliverances, the Messiah there among them. It was quite a great time for them. I imagine they felt pretty important. And human as they were, they've got a bit caught up in their pride and sense of self-importance. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, is quick to deal with the matter through an illustration with a little child. At the time, children were regarded as low in society, and spending time with them was considered to be wasteful. And yet, Jesus tells the disciples, whoever welcomes this little child welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes God the Father. Not necessarily the response you'd expect, but I think Jesus was trying to show them just how wrong their priorities were. Following Jesus does not look like fighting for greatness and status, comparing it to others. Rather, it looks like welcoming in those of any status and serving them. Greatness does not come about by focusing on being great, but through valuing others and serving others. 
Reading this story, I thought, how ridiculous. But are we really all that much better? It might be slightly more subtle than a literal argument about who is greater, but we're still at risk of playing the comparison game, even in our own minds, if not out loud. Because if we're really honest, it can feel quite good to be doing better than others. I might not win awards for graphics that I put together at Kingdom Vineyard, but at least I'm doing better than a lot of organizations. Like, can we not put Comic Sans in the bin yet? <laughs> I might not be earning 50,000 a year like some of my friends from uni are in their graduate jobs, but at least I've bought a house somewhere I love, surrounded by people I love. But this is finding value in our achievements and putting ourselves up against one another to assess our worth and value, and that is not the way of Jesus. It is not the way of the kingdom. A commentary I read put it, all people count and comparison counts for nothing. Following Jesus does not look like fighting for greatness and status, comparing it to others. Rather, it looks like welcoming in those of any status and serving them. We are to be people who welcome in the least, the last, and the lost giving value to all, including and especially those considered the lowest in society, and not focusing on our own greatness and self-importance. That is the way of the kingdom, and that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Following on from the disciples' argument over greatness, John tells Jesus that they saw someone driving out demons in his name, and they tried to stop him because that person was not one of them. It feels to me that this is John trying to earn some brownie points from Jesus, a gold star, if you will. So I imagine when expecting some praise, it was another surprising response from Jesus. Didn't he do that? And I think this is another scenario where the disciples are more focused on status and a sense of importance than the heart of Jesus. Being one of his 12 disciples must have felt pretty special. They got to walk closer with Jesus while he was here on earth than anyone else did. But I wonder if at times they got a bit carried away, even with good intentions of protecting Jesus's name and reputation. Jesus is not so concerned with that because his heart is one of welcome and his ministry is too. Here he teaches his disciples that those outside the inner circle are not to be excluded from ministry or prevented from ministering in his name. Following Jesus does not look like an exclusive club. The ministry of Jesus is not an exclusive ministry for a set few it is a wide mission where everyone gets to play. What does that look like for us? I think within the church, it's a reminder that ministry is for all of us. It's not just for the staff team. It's not just for home group leaders, but each and every one of us. So who can pray for healing? You can. Who can pray for demons to leave? You can. And who can tell someone about Jesus? You can. Everyone gets to play. 
And I think it means being careful not to be quick to judge other churches who do things differently to us. We're not interested in rivalry. So let us love and encourage our brothers and sisters who are not part of our church community. Let us cooperate because we're all after the good news of Jesus to be shared. Following Jesus does not look like an exclusive club. The ministry of Jesus is not an exclusive ministry for a set few. It is a wide mission where everyone gets to play. So let us not ever be people who seek to protect our territory, but let us be people who invite and welcome others onto it. And the third part of this half of the passage In terms of the disciples' stupid responses, this one really might take the crown from me. Some people went ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare the way for Jesus, but they didn't welcome him. The disciples' response? These people over there, Jesus, they say you're not welcome, so shall shall we just call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Can you imagine? <laughs> to be fair to the disciples, this concept of fire from heaven is not one they just thought up in the heat of the moment. It's something we actually see in the Old Testament as a form of God's judgment. In 2 Kings, Elijah repeatedly called fire down from heaven to consume the king's captain and soldiers when the king was after Elijah. The disciples, knowing these stories, and I mean it was Elijah, he was pretty important, they probably thought that this seemed like an appropriate response a good example to follow. And I also think that James and John have caught a little bit of the holiness of Jesus and the reverence he deserves in their response. But they have yet again missed the heart. At what point through Jesus' teaching that they have received from the life that they have been watching him live, do they think, actually, yes, this does seem like what Jesus would want them to do? The disciples have missed the teaching Jesus has been giving them about the heart of the Father, the heart of bringing people back to him and how that'll happen through the suffering servant. Instead, they're still a bit fixated on the wrong idea of the Messiah, that it's gonna be about judgment and battles. So Jesus rebukes them. Following Jesus does not look like bringing judgment. There is a time and a place for judgment, and let us not be blind to the fact that judgment will come, but it is not the time, it is not the place, and they are certainly not the people. The way of Jesus is shaking off the dust, being true to his word and sharing the good news where it, um, sharing the good news, but where it is not welcome, we don't call judgment down from heaven on them. As we learn earlier on in the chapter, we shake the dust off of our feet and we move on. We are not to be people who bring judgment. The second half of today's passage moves from the disciples to those not yet following Jesus. We have three different people making decisions to follow Jesus. And each time, Jesus shares something of what it means to follow him, to be his disciple and it's costly, and it's pretty uncomfortable. Jesus sets a high bar for following him. 
Discipleship of Jesus is a discipleship that requires Jesus and the kingdom to be our top priority in life. And Jesus pulls no punches in teaching us that here. The first man that Jesus and his disciples encounter says, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replies, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, foxes have a home, birds have a home, but I don't. At the time, to follow Jesus quite literally meant following him where he went. It meant moving around as Jesus did, and it meant not being able to pop back home to bed every night. And this man does seem to recognize that. He says, I'll follow you wherever you go. But I think Jesus' response is trying to make sure he recognizes the real cost of following him. It's not just a little trip that you return home from. It's giving up your home. It's giving up your comforts. Jesus is asking, are you willing to give up your comforts to follow me? Are you willing to become homeless to follow me? What does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks like being willing to give up our comforts and sense of home. Now, we are in the fortunate position where following Jesus doesn't mean we all travel in a group together, going from time to time, um, and physically giving up our homes to do so. But I still think there's some implications for us. If Jesus asked us to give up our comforts, would we be willing? It's really easy to say yes, but would we? And I also think that if we're living a life surrendered to Jesus, we're opting into feeling a bit homeless in this world. And we need to know that our home is now with him. Our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul puts it in Philippians. Following Jesus looks like being willing to give up our comforts and sense of home. We are to be people that find our home in him. The next two people we encounter make requests of Jesus about things they want to do before following him. And they seem like pretty reasonable requests. The first one is, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Seems an unreasonable response to a reasonable question. Burying your parents was seen as one of the highest callings. Supporting them until their death and ensuring that they had a proper burial was really important in Jewish culture. And there's some back and forth among scholars about whether this man's father is already dead or if he still has years left to live and actually the request is, let me stick around and see my parents through their final years. But as much as I'm sure many find that fascinating to discuss, I don't think it's the point. I think Jesus is making a point about priorities and not delaying following him for anything, short or long term. He says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Let the dead bury their own dead. What does that mean? I have two suggestions. First, it's not a logical answer, but a rhetorical response, meaning simply let it take care of itself. Or Jesus could be referring to the spiritually dead, those not following him, those not involved in the mission. 
let those people deal with it. But again, as fascinating as, fascinating as I'm sure the detail of that is, let's not miss the point. Jesus' answer to the question, can I first go and bury my father, is essentially no. Why? Because he's making a dramatic point about prioritizing following him over all duties, even good ones, and the commitment that discipleship requires. And because of that, I don't think Jesus is actually saying that honoring your family, looking after them, is actually a bad thing. This isn't about good and bad things to do, but about priorities as followers of Jesus. Following Jesus looks like prioritizing him and his mission even before duty to family. And I don't think it's unreasonable to extend this beyond the specific example of family either. I think it makes a wider point. What are we letting delay us from following Jesus? Once I get through this busy season of work, Lord, then I'll make time for you again. Once I have the most perfectly organized and tidy home, Lord, then I'll sit with you. Once I deal with everything else that everyone is throwing at me, then I'll focus on you again, Jesus. You can insert your own scenario here. Following Jesus looks like prioritizing him and his mission even before duty to family and other good commitments. We are to be people willing to, get, willing to give up things now, even good things, to follow him now, to spend time with him now, and go where he is leading now. Final section. If the last request were sound, sounded reasonable, and I don't know what to say about this one, let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus gives another response that sounds like a no, but also had me ask, what does that mean? No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is an excellent image, and one that I've always just skipped past without thinking about. If, like me, you're not a farmer and don't regularly think about plowing fields, allow me to explain. Typically, farmers plow in straight lines. I hear it makes harvesting easier, also probably an efficient use of space. But to do so, you need to look where you're going. If you turn back, inevitably you'll go off course, and then maybe your seed will be sown in wiggly lines, and we just cannot be having that. <laughs> so let me give you a visual demonstration that's not farming-related of what, it might happen, what might happen when you look back when trying to go straight. I'm hoping an image, yeah, here we go. It's <laughs> good. It doesn't really go well. That line is uh, not fit for service. A couple of months ago, I started driving lessons, and I've been learning the importance of this um, in my lessons. My instructor is always telling me to look where I want to go, and that's where I'll go. You steer where you look, she says. And this actually was quite tricky to begin with, um, because I was so conscious of every hazard around me, from pedestrians being silly to other cars around me to the curb at the side of the road that I was really desperate not to hit. But if I focused on any one of those things too much, like the curb at the side of the road, I inevitably started steering more closely towards it rather than a safe distance from it. 
If I took my eyes off of where I wanted to go, the middle of my side of the road, I started to drift away. It is really important to keep looking where you want to go. And just in case you think I'm simply an incompetent driver, this is an actual thing, and it's called target fixation. And ultimately, it can cause accidents. Motorcyclists have been known to literally drive into oncoming traffic because they've been focused too intently on all the vehicles coming towards them that they've just drifted onto the other side of the road. Just like in the previous encounter, I don't think Jesus is making a point about how saying goodbye to family is bad. But instead, it's about not looking back, about not trying to follow two things at once. It's about having undivided hearts rather than half-heartedness. It's about being fully in for Jesus. Following Jesus means keeping our eyes fixed on him. Returning to my driving example, as I said, the tendency I had at the beginning of my lessons was to let the hazards around me consume my attention. So much so, I'd kind of forget to focus on what I was doing. Since then, I've done a lot of practicing at acknowledging my hazards and focusing on my driving in response. Because it is important to acknowledge hazards and deal with them, but it's unhelpful for them to become the sole focus of our attention. So, what hazards are pulling your eyes off of where you want to go? What distractions are pulling your eyes away from Jesus? There are hundreds, thousands of distractions fighting for our attention every minute of every day. From the little distraction device we all carry in our pockets, to the pressure to care for our families or our friends, to our careers, to success, but we are to be people who keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And Jesus says that actually, if we don't, we're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Ouch. If we don't, our kingdom work is about as effective as that line on the road. Is it still there? Maybe not. So let's make every effort to keep our eyes on him to acknowledge those things around us that are pulling us away, but keeping on course. And before we finish, I want to recognize that we will all fail at this, and that is okay. God is so gracious. And all of what it looks like to follow Jesus is in the context of who he is. Kind, compassionate, gracious. We see people fail constantly throughout the Bible, and we're going to keep seeing that as we make our way through Luke's gospel. And what we'll see is that God is always welcoming to those who turn to him, who say sorry when we mess up, and do all we can to walk in his ways. So, returning to our question, who are we to be in light of who Jesus is? We are to be people who welcome in the least, the last, and the lost, not people fighting for greatness and status. We are to be people who are not protective over our inner circles, but people who invite and welcome others in. We are to be people who are not bringing judgment down on others. 
We are to be people who find our home in Jesus, willing to give up our comforts for his kingdom. We are to be people willing to prioritize Jesus and his mission, even over other good commitments. And we are people who are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, following him and him alone. Following Jesus is not easy work. We are called to live in a way that is so different to what we see around us. But Jesus is so worth it. And the life he offers us is so worth it. He is God the Son himself, who came down low to us so that we may be brought back into loving relationship with our creator. Following Jesus is not easy, but it is the best thing we can do. So let's pray, I think, because we probably need some help. So why don't you stand? Um, We are going to move into a time of response. We call this our ministry time. It is the opportunity to come up to this space at the front and have people who are in home groups come alongside you and pray for you. Um, you can come forward for anything that you would like, um, but I would love to invite you specifically, if you're maybe struggling in the kind of chaos of life to make time, to follow Jesus, if that's something that's really tricky for you, I would love to invite you forward for prayer. And also, if you're kind of aware of there's maybe some distractions in your life that are pulling your attention away, um, would also love to pray for you. Um, yeah, let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. We are so grateful to you that you have made a way for us to be back into your family. So we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Would you come and would you strengthen us and would you help us be better followers of Jesus? Thank you that it is through your strength, not through our own. So we just come before you again. Would you have your way in us? Amen.